And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Joe Lowry, and today I'm joined by the man that Austin FC probably should have run their Jersey Explainer post by before they tweeted it out. It's Adam Snavely. Adam, it's great to talk to you. How's it going? Joe, I am doing well, and hello to all you beautiful listeners out there in the digital wonderland. I hope that you sold your stocks in time today. <laughs> I'm doing great, Joe. I'm, I'm I'm do, I'm doing wonderful. Uh, I I am I've had my coffee. Uh, it's a bright and shining morning in Virginia. It snowed, uh, which is a, a big deal. Um, I miss the snow a lot of the time, and uh, we haven't had a good snow in a really long time. So I, I feel great this morning. Yeah, we also got snow here in Phoenix. Even though Taylor really wouldn't let me talk about it, I think now he maybe understands why that was such a big deal because it's 145 degrees out, you know, 270 days of the year here in Arizona, or at least in my part of Arizona. So yeah, snow is, snow is a big deal, Adam. And I'm glad that you and I have the chance to bond over this. Yeah, I, I being originally from upstate New York, um, specifically from Western New York, a little town called Bath, which is wedged in between Rochester and Buffalo. Snow was a, a massive part of, of growing up and snow days. And, and I was used to a certain amount of it. And when I moved, that amount significantly decreased. So it's nice <laughs> to see it every now and then. We've got a lot of not snow-related topics to get into on today's show. We're going to go through and do a quick preview of the United States men's national team's game on Sunday. That's going to be happening between them and Trinidad and Tobago. And then we have a list of wonderful listener questions to get to. Before we do any of those things, Adam, I wanted to let listeners out there know that today, as we're recording Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Taylor Rockwell and Ryan Bailey, you know them both well, are going to be doing a Soccer 101-centric live show on the Stereo app. So the Stereo app, you can just find it on any app store by typing in Stereo. The app is free, and it's it's pretty darn cool, honestly. It lets you record questions and submit them so that they can be answered live on the show. So today, I'll be live kind of behind the scenes moderating things, so I'm pretty sure that gives me the power to loose any question on Taylor and Ryan that you all submit as listeners at any time so I can sick them with pretty much anything. So I'm looking forward to the power that I'm going to be having later today. And listeners out there, I'd recommend you tune in. It's going to be free. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a great time. So that's my my little stereo plug up front. Adam, are you ready to get into this U.S. Men's National Team short little preview that we're doing? I am, but I would like to let listeners remind, I would like to remind listeners rather, uh, that if you ask somebody on the stereo show, uh, if you record the question, where do babies come from? Joe is the reason that it doesn't appear on the show. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I have a lot of direct power. all of your complaints to Joe. 
Yeah, that man. I shouldn't have said I was moderating, should I? I should have just let that go. You and shouldn't then, have. Now it's all now it's all on you. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. I'm gonna go back through and edit this all out later. Um, so that that doesn't even that doesn't even need to to go into listeners' ears. Shifting our attention, Mr. Snavely, to this game on Sunday. Uh, first of all, I, we'll we'll go into context and players we're watching for, and we're going to do our starting lineups, but. What is your feeling about this game? Are you excited to have another men's national team game to watch? Or are you just sort of lukewarm on this one? You know, I'm actually excited about this one because I think that for the first time in a while, there's a lot of really interesting domestic player options that I'm like really, really invested and interested in seeing how they perform at this camp. There's a lot of attacking talent that is based in MLS that I'm curious about that I think stands a decent chance to make some moves abroad in the next couple of years that follow. And I'm really, really curious to see how some of them shake out in Berhalter system. They have a good chance to show it off against an opponent that is probably not going to be particularly strong. Sorry to Trinidad and Tobago, but looking at your roster, I I would expect that not to be the, the strongest competition that the United States is going to face in the next year or so, um, even in uh, any possible future games with Trinidad and Tobago. So I'm I'm very curious to see this game. I have a lot of uh, players that I'm that I'm looking forward to seeing and kind of getting my eyeballs on. So, yeah, I am actually looking forward to this game. I'm right there with you. And before we get into some of those specific players that we're going to be keeping our eyes on, I want to lay down some some groundwork here to go over the context of this game This is a January camp game. It's going to be held on January 31st, which means that because this is in the January window, that it's not actually an official FIFA window. So yes, there are players coming into the national team, and yes, the U.S. is playing a real game. But again, it's not a FIFA window, so European clubs and and clubs around the world don't have to release their players. So Greg Berhalter's roster for this game on Sunday is going to be made up of entirely is going to entirely be made up of domestic players. So a lot of guys from MLS coming in and playing in this game. Another strange facet of this camp is is that it was a dual camp, kind of with the U.S. U23s uh, headed up by Jason Kreiss as their coach, and then also the senior group of players. So it was initially a small group of senior players that Greg Berhalter was working with, and then in combination with Jason Kreiss and his U23 roster that was in there, to be prepping for Olympic qualifying in mid in in mid March, so it was a combined group of players, and that's what we're going to see. We're going to see some senior level players. We're going to see a lot of younger players on Sunday on the thirty first, and it's a chance for for players to get reps out on the field. And that's why I'm excited about this game. Any any time we get to see the U.S. play, it's a chance for Berhalter to look at more of the pool, and it's a chance for him to continue to install his system of play and continue to get guys comfortable in that system. So I think that sort of lays down the the groundwork and the framework for this game did i did i miss anything (laughs) no i just i think it is funny that every time that a a january camp rolls around it seems like there is somebody that that gets on twitter angrily and saying who are these people why isn't christian pulisic playing where is tyler adams these are the people (laughs) that i want to see with the u.s um and if you're if you are one of those people who are currently wondering why they are not with the team uh joe has just given a beautiful explanation and if you're wondering why it's all split up that way it's actually matthew doyle's fault so if you have any complaints (laughs) get on your twitter and at matt doyle 76 i believe it is uh go and go and send all of your uh your complaints and your strong feelings to him 
I could not have said that any better, even if I'd spent some real time trying. So, Adam, thank you for for just really deflecting all complaints off of ourselves and towards Matt. I think that that's only fair. There's a 25-man travel roster that Baralter has named for this game on Sunday against Trinidad and Tobago. I debated, and I'm not going to read the roster. There's a lot of names, 25 <laughs> of them to be exact. Yeah. But the roster is out there. You can, you can look it up. Google's a wonderful thing. We are, however, going to go over players that we're particularly interested in watching. And I'm going to go first because I'm guessing this is also going to be a player that you have on your list, Adam. So I want to get mine in there first because I'm selfish that way. I want to see Matt Turner. Matt Turner is in this group. He has been the guy that has been at the center of the goalkeeper debate between him, Matt Turner, and Zach Steffen. Zach Steffen at Manchester City getting games while Ederson is unavailable or occasionally getting games in the cup over there. And Matt Turner is the goalkeeper for Bruce Arena's New England Revolution. Turner is the analytics darling of American soccer Twitter, of American soccer analysis, and all of these different things. Turner is in line for his first cap. He got called into this camp. Sean Johnson was also brought into this camp, but he's got a little knee injury, so he was sent home. And now Turner is the guy of the three goalkeepers on Berhalter's roster. He he seems to be really in line for getting a game and getting a start. I'm interested to watch Matt Turner's shot-stopping ability. He's one of the best goalkeepers in Major League Soccer and has been consistently over the last three years at keeping balls out of the net. I don't know how his distribution is. We're not going to find that out in this game against Trinidad and Tobago, and we're probably not going to find that out with the New England Revolution in the regular season in MLS in 2021. But I'm interested to see Matt Turner on the field for the U.S. simply because we've never seen it before. Yeah, uh, and like you said, he is that one of the one of those one of those analytics darlings, uh, one of the the people that a lot of the the advanced analysis uh, soccer people really really love to tout about. And goalkeeper advanced analytics are kind of funny. Um, I was actually asking a couple of people about this just the other day because I was trying to get a better handle on them myself. Um, and my my big question was, why do advanced goalkeeper analytics when you're looking at a team's uh, expected goal, uh, expected goals versus the actual goals they give up and how that relates to goalkeepers and correlating those things. And, and why do those seem to be so much more volatile or there, or there typically seems to be an eye test difference, uh, when you compare those to certain players on the, in the field or on the attacking side of the ball. Um, and the answer that I got from, from a few people, um, among them, Kieran Doyle and Carl Carpenter, who are both very good at what they do, and I consider them both very smart people, is that um, in addition to the noisiness of the the play that is occurring, you also have what the goalkeeper is doing. So it's almost like when people say you can't use single game expected goal totals because there is you know, there's always going to be some weird things that happen in games and some XG is not created equal to other XG. And it's always better to look at a large sample size that goes double for goalkeepers. Cause you're trying to measure both what is happening in terms of the attacking side with the expected goals and also what the goalkeeper is doing. But Matt Turner is one of those rare people that the analytics love him. And also he stands up to eye tests. So I am also excited to see Matt Turner. I must admit he wasn't actually on my list of people though, Joe, that I was very, very interested in seeing what they're going to be doing with the national team. Um, My first person that I had on my list as somebody that I really wanted to look over uh, and look out for is actually uh, Orlando city's Benji Michelle. Go on. I am very curious 
what Greg Berhalter is going to be doing with Benji because when Benji is used with Orlando City, he's typically as 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 much as I've seen. And granted, I have not watched all of Orlando City's matches, but from what I usually see when Benji Michel is in the game is him being deployed as a forward. A lot of the time he will come in as a substitute for a forward, or I will see him on the wing. And he's kind of one of those kind of hybrid players that will be deployed either way. He is listed on this roster as a midfielder. And on this roster, the people that you expect to play on the wing, the people like Chris Mueller, uh, even Jonathan Lewis, um, are listed as forwards and not as midfielders. So that suggests to me that Burhalter possibly has some positional shenanigans afoot with Benji Michel. And I am curious to see if Burhalter has kind of a, almost a Yunus Musa uh, type of plan for him or, or is interested in trying him out in that more advanced midfield role, but that's still not like an attacking number 10 per se is kind of like the more advanced eight almost, I guess. Um, simply because Yunus Musa, we were so used to seeing Yunus Musa and, and heard about him as a winger slash a forward. He obviously plays the wing a lot for Valencia, um, but he stepped into the United States and then national team. He stepped into that central midfield role and really excelled and shown in that role. So I'm curious to see how Benji Michel is used. And I'm curious to see if Berhalter has a similar plan given his designation as a midfielder on this roster. I just love the phrase, you know, Berhalter's positional shenanigans, or is Berhalter up to some positional shenanigans? Not only is that hard to say, but I, I just love it, and I think it fits really well with with what we know of Greg Berhalter. That's a great catch on the roster, Adam. I am now, I'm now curious about that as well, and I want to add in the other three. So there are four total Orlando City players on this roster. There are. I, I want to quickly mention the other three that are in this group of players. So the first is Andres Perea of Orlando yep. City. He's a, a defensive midfielder. He's going to be, by all accounts, a number six option next to or, or, or behind, rather, I should say, behind Jackson Ewell, most likely in the depth chart for that number six spot in this group of players. But he's a more mobile option. He's more of a pressing option at that spot, almost more in the Tyler Adams mold instead of the Michael Bradley will trap Jackson Ewell mold. But I'm, I'm curious to see if he's going to get minutes in the second half of this game because I do expect Jackson Ewell to start. I also want to see Daryl DK and Chris Mueller, the the two more attacking players for Orlando City in this group, in addition to Benji Michel. DK, he's in a second camp with the U.S. He was in the December camp, but he got hurt in that camp and didn't play against El Salvador. He's super physical. I, I just want to know how Greg Berhalter is going to use him, and I, I think we're going to see him in this game. And then Chris Mueller, he scored twice in the U.S. men's national team, 6 nothing win over El Salvador in December. You and I talked about him after that game, Adam. He provides so much value going going direct and, and vertical and getting in behind the opposing back line. I think we're going to see more of Chris, Chris Mueller in this game against Trinidad and Tobago, and I'm I'm so ready for it. Yeah, I would be very, very surprised if we did not see Chris Mueller from the start in this game. And I would also be surprised if we didn't see Daryl DK and Andres Perea. I think those are both two guys that I mean, Burhalter has publicly stated how much he has looked forward to looking uh, to working with Daryl DK. And as Daryl DK is the person in the pool that I would say is the closest kind of like to like uh, successor to Josie Altador in terms of what he can do 
physically with both his strength and speed, what he can do uh, with his spacing on the field and how he sees the game, the way that he demonstrated his holdup play and just the insane learning curve that he exhibited in his first year as a pro with Orlando City. Um, it speaks to me that he is a very intelligent player and I'm curious and, and very, very eager to see him in a United States uniform. And I'm also really excited to see uh, Perea as well, given that he was only called up to the the weird December camp as a replacement when Frankie Amaya tested positive for COVID uh, when he arrived to camp and immediately had to be sent home. Um, and in that span of time, he got called up as the replacement. He wasn't even eligible to play for the United States yet because he is a dual citizen with Colombia and had played for Colombia at a Youth World Cup. And since that time has filed his one time switch with the United States and has been called into a second camp and is now included, even though he is kind of probably U23 option has been included with the senior players. So that speaks to me all that happening in a very short amount of time that Burhalder is also really into Perea and what he can do on the field. So I'm curious to see what he can do. I will add one more name to this list as far as players who I am excited to see uh, and curious about. And that is Mr. George Bellow, who I think that I think that George Bellow has rightly been one of the more hyped and anticipated players for the U.S. over the last several years. But understandably conversation about him died down a little bit thanks to a long-term injury layoff in 2019 in 2020 established himself as a starter is a left back which as the united states men's national team fans always know you can never have too many left back options is somebody that is a serious attacking threat going forward and i'm curious to see even though that mr sam vines is also on this roster and we also talked about our our like of Sam Vines after the uh, the game against El Salvador that the U.S. men's national team played. I'm curious to see George Bello at the international level, see what he can do and see if he's at that level that we expected him to be when he first kind of burst on the scene with Atlanta when he signed as a homegrown player a few years ago. Let's move into our starting 11s. We've talked about some players that were very excited to watch in this game. There are more, and there are going to be more in my starting 11, and I assume that's going to be the case with your 11 as well. Adam, let's go back and forth. Let's go uh, starting from the back and move up to the front with our goalkeepers. Who do you have starting in goal in your ideal U.S. men's national team, you know, Greg Berhalter masquerade starting 11? Uh, so in my, I, I kind of, I, I ditched the... I ditched the idea that I was going to try to guess what Burhalter is going oh, to do yeah. and just decided to, to say, you know what, this is the 11 that I would like to see from the start for various reasons. But I got Matt Turner in goal because why wouldn't you put Matt Turner in goal? You know? Yeah, I'm right there with you. Matt Turner is my goalkeeper option. He is he's the best goalkeeper on this roster. And I think that is a big thing. And there's kind of no reason not to give him a start in this game. Moving into the back line, I'm going to start with my two center backs. And I'm going off the wall a little bit here. As my left-sided center back, I have Walker Zimmerman, who I don't believe has ever played as a left-sided center back under Greg Berhalter. But he's about to, at least in my fictional world. And next to him, I have the Chicago Fire's Mauricio Pineda, who, to be very Hmm. clear, I do not think will start in this game. I would probably be surprised if he played in this game. The other center back options on this roster are, are Miles Robinson, of Atlanta United and Aaron Long of the New York Red Bulls, although he might be moving abroad while MLS figures out its labor negotiations. But I think it's more likely that we see Aaron Long and Walker Zimmerman play next to each other. 
But I wanted to pick the two best ball playing center backs on this roster to start for me in my lineup. And that's Walker Zimmerman, who was a great, at least a good ball playing center back for Nashville. And that's Mauricio Pineda, who in the past has played as a central midfielder, is very capable of progressing the ball up the field, either on the dribble or with his passing. I, I love what he brings to, to this group, and I love what he brought to the Chicago Fire in his rookie season last year in Major League Soccer. I've got those two players, Zimmerman and Pineda, playing next to each other, even though, again, I don't think that's actually going to happen. <laughs> sure. I actually also have Walker Zimmerman on the left side of my uh, center back situation. I have paired him with Aaron Long. I did the boring thing, but I did the boring thing because I wanted my fullback options to be as buck wild and attack heavy as possible. And so I went with the guys that I was most certain would probably be able to lock things down in the back. Uh, and I, I think that the, the steadiness of those two veterans are going to allow my, my fullbacks to really just run wild and free. Well, you're leading us in that direction, Adam. Who do you have as your right back and your left back? I assume you're in a 4-3-3. I guess I should have said that up front. I'm in a 4-3-3. But yeah, who are your, who are your attacking fullbacks who are going to go wild? I am in a 4-3-3 as well. I decided to keep it in Burhalter's preferred system, or at least the preferred system that he has shown the last several times out. I have Julian Araujo as my right back as a repeat of the El Salvador game, and I actually put George Bellow in at left back um, over Sam Vines. I love Sam Vines. I'm a big Sam Vines fan, but I really would like to see George Bellow go, and I would love to see what that combination looks like with Chris Mueller down the left-hand side. Spoiler alert. I put Chris Mueller on the left-hand side, too. <laughs> uh, and I think that George Bellow, obviously Sam Vines, is a, a fullback that gets up and provides a lot, of, um, a lot of options and a lot of opportunities in the attack. But George Bellow uh, provides a little bit more, I think, in terms of a burst of, of speed and pace than Sam Vines does. Um, and I'm curious to see with, when defenses get really stretched out trying to track a bellow, what Mueller can do on that left side. So I put George, George Bellow at left back. I've got Sam Vines at left back. I was tempted to put George Bellow there because I'm interested in what he can bring to this group. But I stuck with Vines because he's the guy that Berhalter's gone with in the last couple of games here in the United States. And I really like what he brings defensively and even his passing on on the ball. And then I've got Julian Araujo on the right side. He is he's the guy in this group over Aaron Herrera and over Kyle Duncan for me, at least. Again, I like what he brings defensively and we've seen him under Berhalter before. So there's some comfortable so there's some comfortable relationship aspect there as well. Moving into midfield, I kind of spoiled it earlier, at least for my group. I have Jackson Ewell starting as my number six. He can pass, and, and with Walker Zimmerman and Mauricio Pineda as my center backs, and Ewell is my number six, I really like that passing ability in the central spine. Then ahead of him, I have Sebastian Legette on the left. He is probably the best player in this camp, and certainly, I think, going to be the biggest difference maker for the U.S. over the next couple of years as we look forward to 2022 and even beyond and headed into 2026. He's my left-sided number eight. And then next to him, I have Kellen Acosta. He's back in the fold. He was back in the fold in December and got on the field against El Salvador. I love how he covers ground. I think he fits that pressing mold that Berhalter wants from his central midfielders. So that's why I have Acosta and then Sebastian Legette for his creativity in front of Jackson Yule in my three-man midfield. I actually also have Acosta and Legette, but uh, I put Andres Perea. As my well as my number six, I do. I think that Andres Perea is going to start this game. No, not really. I expect that Jackson Ewell is going to start this game, but I have been sold by, I guess, the the 
the quick move of everything that has surrounded Andres Perea's switch to the U.S. men's national team. Um, I have been sold by how he eats up ground uh, and is probably a much more mobile option, I would say, than Jackson Ewell. I am intrigued by him, and I would like to see him start. And I don't think that I really need to justify it more than that. No, I don't think you do. The other midfield options in this group, Benji Michelle of Orlando City that we talked about earlier, Christian Roldan of the Seattle Sounders, and Tanner Tessman of FC Dallas. There's a good chance we see all or at least some of those players on Sunday, but again, not in our starting 11s. On the left wing, for me, I have the same player that you do, Adam. I have Chris Mueller. He was effective in December. Give him another run out. Let him see what he can do against Trinidad. On the right side, I have Paul Areola. It's kind of the boring pick, but he, he gets the job done, and there aren't a lot of other wide attacking options in this group. As my number nine, I have Daryl DK. I, I think it's kind of a toss-up between him and Josie Altidore to start this game. They, there's also Jesus Ferreira in this group who could start as that number nine dropping into midfield. But I went with DK because, one, I'm the most excited to see him, and two, I don't think Josie Altidore can play a full game right now. I'm not sure if he'll be playing full 90-minute stretches for the men's national team down the line again ever, really. And so I kind of figured, why not get Altidore coming off the bench in the second half or in the 60th minute or whatever it is to get him settled into that super sub role that I think he could fit in really well with the U.S. down the line. You know, I like I said before, I have Chris Mueller on the left. I also put Paul Areola on the right. Um, I just think that both those guys are positionally very good fits for uh kind of the fullbacks flying up and overlapping around them, which I know that both Julian Araujo and George Bello and or Sam Vines like to do. They like to get up into the attack. And I think that both Chris Miller and Paul Ariola know, have a, have a good feel for combining with those types of players. I actually put Josie Altidore in from the start as my striker, mostly because I am an unabashed Josie Altidore fan. Um, and I still think that he has a, a big role to play with the United States men's national team going forward. Obviously, fitness is an issue with Josie Altador. That is, I mean, you you just have to reckon with that if you're going to say Josie Altador is a, a is going to have a big part to play. But he's 31 years old, which is not very old at all in terms of the grand scheme of the game. Is it old for Josie Altador and his injury history? Possibly so. But I don't think that the the book is written on Josie Altador as a starting striker for the United States men's national team just yet. I still think that there are people that need to take that spot from him. And I am curious to see if it will happen. I certainly think that it could happen in the next year. But I would like to see Josie Altador play from the start with kind of this the the first choice Burhalter lineup just to see what happens. I I like Josie Altidore, and I still want to know exactly what he has to give. I'm not saying that he is still the starter by right, or that that this is this is you know you have to play Josie Altidore right now. I am curious to see him and curious to see him if he is going to still I guess earn his keep and earn that spot uh, in the United States men's national team. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to 
the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willingly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. There you have it, folks. Adam and I gave players to watch. We gave our starting 11s for this game. And you can watch this game on Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern time on Fox Sports 1, Unimas and Turiene. Taylor and I will be reviewing this game and analyzing it and breaking it down and having some fun after the game. We're planning to get that episode out Sunday night. Adam, we've talked a lot of U.S. men's national team. Are you ready to shift our focus into these listener questions? Ooh, I'll just crack my neck a little bit and we can get into some listener questions. I am ready, Joseph. All right, here we go. This first one is from Peter Venturato, who says, after the unfortunate incident, oh, we're, we're talking more men's national team right here. After the unfortunate incident, I assume Peter's talking about a, a location that rhymes with loofah and something that happened in <laughs> 2017. Uh, so Peter <laughs> says, after that and before the wave of new talent headed to Europe, The U.S. men's national team was grasping at any straw they could and put a lot of hopes on young Americans, but most of them seem to have fallen off the map. Are there any updates on these players? This was this was a trip down memory lane to prep for this question. To answer Peter's question directly, there are updates on some of these players. They're not necessarily groundbreaking ones, but there are updates. I've got a few names down on my list to go through. Adam, I want to turn this to you first, though. Who is one player that kind of fits in that that middle years and that no man's land time frame under Dave Sarikin really after the U S didn't qualify for the world cup in 2017. And before we started to see this European talent or this American talent breakthrough in Europe, who's a player that you have that fits in that category and what's going on with him. 
I, I'm sorry, Joe. I'm still on the rhymes with loofah thing. <laughs> As we all remember, the the famous United States men's national team lost in Kufa. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a near rhyme. Uh, that's what we say in the poetry business. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's close. We'll, we'll, we'll allow it, I guess. Yes, there are a couple of people um, that were definitely talked about that bounced around that appeared under Dave Sarakin in that uh, period of time. Um, a couple of people. I'm going to start with Roman Gall, um, mostly because I uh, actually interviewed Roman Gall during this period uh, of time and uh, was at least at one point. Well, I was still kind of familiar. I think his number is still on my phone, actually, which is. I don't Flex. know if that's. Kind of? Kind of? I don't know. <laughs> What's up? Um, he is. Still in Scandinavia, um, when he when he kind of got a little appearance with the United States men's national team and was making a little bit of noise, uh, he was doing things with Malmo, uh, who are big club in Sweden. Obviously, um, he was scoring some goals for them and uh, being being an attacking threat, really. And uh, one of uh, Roman Gaul's big kind of trademarks is the kid loves to shoot. Like he just get him the ball 20 yards from goal and he will hammer that thing. Um, almost a, almost a, a Mason Greenwood type of profile to Roman Gaul. Um, he is still technically with Malmo, uh, but he is a bit on the outs with them. As far as I can tell, has not had many appearances for them as of late and actually has been loaned to a couple different Scandinavian clubs over the last year or two, including uh, the, the ex Bob Bradley's in Norway, Stabayek. <laughs> um, so that is, that is the update on Roman Gaul. Um, basically looking for a permanent home. I think uh, it seems unless there's a management change or something else happens, he does not seem to have a much of a future with Malmo at the moment. Uh, I will also talk, I guess about Shaq more, mostly because I love the name Shaq. Um, As you should. Yeah, it's just a great name. I was really, really, I'm, I still am really rooting for Shaq Moore uh, to make it to the U.S. men's national team, as well as uh, Kobe Hernandez Foster, so that we can have Shaq and Kobe play for the senior U.S. men's national team. Uh, Shaq Moore bounced, has bounced around Spain a little bit. He is now with Tenerife in uh, La Segunda División, uh, or if I, uh, I guess I've, I'm saying it with, like a Spanish person, La Segunda División. Um, yeah, they list the S's. That's all they I know. Do. They do. It's true. Um, he he's a pretty consistent player, uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, but hasn't really, you know, he, he he's basically like I think considered like a, a fairly average right back in in Spain right now. Um, in in the second division. So that is the update on Shaq Moore. Has not really made I would say significant progress. I don't really think that he is really made any significant like fall either. Um, he's just kind of uh, a person at this point that unless he makes a big leap, I don't think that you will see him with the national team again. You talking about Shaq more reminded me of, of those friendlies that the U S played under Dave Sarakin in those in between years. Remember after, after the U S lost to Trinidad and Tobago and didn't qualify for that world cup. They played a friendly about a month later against Portugal, right? In Portugal. I remember the stadium. I, I wish I could remember which stadium it was 
but it had these these beautiful different colored seats and that's that was my biggest takeaway from the game because <laughs> there was nothing else that we could take away at that time i think we got to see tyler adams and weston mckinney in that one as well so yeah, that was weston mckinney scored cj sapong i think started as the number nine there, there's so many he did and it was awesome i love cj sapong <laughs> i remember that portugal game and then i remember before the World Cup in 2018, it was June. The U.S. played a friendly against Ireland, which was whatever. And then they played against France. Yep. And they drew France in France, I think it was, 1-1 right before the World Cup. A very, a very defensive game. A very defensive game. I think the U.S. played a, a 5-4-1 or a 5-3-2. I know they had five at the back. And Shaq Moore was the right wing back in that game. There's so many of these little, these little flashbacks in the U.S. men's national team past that we don't really like to talk about, but also it's kind of a weird rite of passage that we do get to talk about it because we we live through it and we we watch these games and we're still somehow interested in what was going on, even though there wasn't a ton to play for at that time. And speaking of that France game, wasn't it Julian Green who scored the goal for the United States in that game? I think it was, yeah. The two Bundesliga legend himself? <laughs> I, I will say that I, I did put Julian Green down on this list of players as like, oh, we're kind of grasping at young talent to see if anybody pans out. Um and and Julian Green has uh, kind of a, become a meme in a lot of U.S. fan circles, but he has quietly done pretty well for himself in the two Bundesliga uh, and has established himself as a starting central midfielder um, for uh, uh, I, I always mispronounce this team's name. Gr- yeah, it starts with Gr- the first word starts with a G and the second one starts Gr- with an Greuther Firth, Greuther Firth or something like that. I, I'm my German is is awful. My German pronunciation. <laughs> so I, I cannot tell you. Um, but uh I would say of the people that are like kind of like this lost prospects or whatever, something like that, Julian Green has quietly been pretty successful and I could see him actually popping up in the Bundesliga as a useful player and possibly even in the U.S. uh, setup still. Uh, I don't think the book is quite written on Julian Green yet, but he's another person on my list. No, that's a good one. I, I think there's a chance he does get a look with the national team down the line over the next couple of years. Some guys that I'm not so sure will be getting those looks. Lyndon Gooch and Kenny Seth. I'll start with Gooch. He played in that Portugal game that I talked about just a second ago. He also played in a friendly that the U.S. had in 2018 against Bolivia's C team, basically. I remember Weston McKinney bossed that game as a number six. But Adam, I think there's a good chance you and I could have, we wouldn't have bossed the game, but we we might have not stuck out entirely as sore thumbs on the field in that game. Gooch <laughs> played in that friendly against Bolivia. and And even before... Those in-between years under Sarikin, he was in in the picture with the U.S. even back to 2016. Yeah, yep. He got on the field under Bruce Arena in that 4 nothing loss to Costa Rica and World Cup qualifying. So, so Lyndon Gooch has been around for about five years now, at least hanging around on the periphery. Club-wise, though, he's still just chilling at Sunderland while they're I, trying I, to figure I, out how to get out of League One. He's still I, there. I wrote down Lyndon Gooch's name, and all I typed next to it was Sunderland until he dies. <laughs> I think he's I think he's going to be there by contract until he dies. Yeah, I that's that's that's, that's that's what he's doing. That's that's a, that's <laughs> the the career track right now. Looking at Kenny Seth shifting away from Lyndon Gooch and shifting over to Kenny Seth. Kenny Seth, I, I, I remember being excited to watch him play. He filed a one time switch from Israel to the U.S. in 2017 so that he could play for them. And since then, he played for the U.S. four times, once under Bruce Arena in a friendly mm-hmm. against Ghana in 2017, and the other three times under Dave Sarikin in friendlies in 2018. So at that time, he was playing for Ghent and then Anderlecht in Belgium, and, and that's a decent level. He was playing for a couple of the best teams in Belgium. But then, Adam, I totally forgot about this. 
He moved. Kenny Seth His moved MLS career. to FC Cincinnati on yeah. loan in 2019 and played, wait for it, all of nine games with them. Was there mm-hmm. for three months and then moved back to Anderlecht. And now he's on loan in Poland playing for a mid-table first division Polish team. So what a ride. Honestly, I, I don't have any more words than that. What a ride. Yeah, Kenny Kenny Seff is definitely a, a roller coaster ride of a of a like a three year span in terms of his career and where he went. Um, yeah, Kenny Seff is another one of those guys. I also have down Cameron Carter Vickers, who is yeah. who is another person that's a little bit like Lyndon Gooch in that he's been around the U.S. program for a long time now, similar to how he's been around Tottenham for forever uh, and has received six loans in four years. Uh, Tottenham still somehow owns owns him. Uh, is is he is still a Tottenham player technically? Um, and I don't. His case is really weird to me um, because he's had good spells frequently on his on his loans to the championship, which is always where he's been loaned. Um, and even last season, by many reports, was a very good player for Luton Town. Um, probably one of their best defenders. Uh, that the, from what I've seen and what I've heard about his time at Luton Town um, is now with Bournemouth, uh, who, of course, were just relegated last season um, and has only made a couple of appearances this season, has only gotten on the field like two or three times from what I can see. Um, Cameron Carter Vickers is one of those players that I'm just I, I think that he has shown at this point that he is at the very least a good and competent championship level center back. I just don't know what Tottenham is doing with him. And I, I feel like at this point, best case scenario is they finally sell him somewhere. Um, because I don't think that he is, I don't, I don't think the constant loans and changing up of systems and personnel around him and coaches that are managing him obviously is, is really doing anything for him as a player. He's another guy who's hanging on at the edge of the pool. He might get a look. He might not. I, I think the center back depth chart and, and depth at that spot has probably surpassed CCV at this point. But things change. He's still young-ish, even though he's had six loans in four years, like you're saying. Uh, Adam, do you have any more guys before we we kind of tie the knot on Peter's question and keep going? Uh, I will I will uh, blow taps for one Mr. Gideon Zalalem. Oh, Yes. Uh, one of the more famous people that we thought were going to be massive for us, uh, was an Arsenal Academy player. We thought he was going to be great and wonderful. Uh, played for the U.S. in two Youth World Cups. The second one, he suffered a serious injury. Um, I believe he tore his ACL, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he subsequently bounced around, had that short Rangers loan uh where he did kind of okay uh then came to mls uh with sporting kansas city didn't play very much uh nycfc uh got a hold of his rights and what he was an nycfc player last year made a couple of appearances and is now as far as i can tell out of contract without a club and i don't know how much more of a career he has yeah, when you said Rangers, I wasn't sure if you meant Rangers in Scotland or Swope Park Rangers in, in oh, USL, although they've been rebranded. I was referring to Scotland Rangers, but now that you say that, he probably did play for Swope Park Rangers. Yeah, we've gone, we, man, we've gone down the Gideon Zalalem rabbit hole, even though it was just for a minute, I think further than 
further than I can stand, it, it's a tough one. That is an extremely tough career. He was such a talented player coming up through the youth ranks at Arsenal. And just it hasn't it hasn't worked out, and it didn't work out for a lot of these uh, a lot of the other players that we talked about. Although they're still having some solid professional careers. Adam, moving us forward to our next question. This one is from Richard Rolson, who asks, "What do you think is Frank Lampard's future as a coach? Does he need to get a job back in a lower league, another EPL team, or is his future outside of coaching? Where does Frank Lampard go now that he's out from Chelsea? He had a year at Derby, and then a, a little over." a year coaching Chelsea, where does he go? So hear me out on this. I think that ultimately Frank Lampard was a okay coach and a very good manager. And I think that his coaching ideas were at times decent and at times not that great. Um, I was never blown away like technically or tactically by a Frank Lampard team, but there were plenty of times where I think that he put out, teams and game plans that that worked and that were good. Um, and obviously he had kind of a very, a surprisingly good first season with Chelsea. I think a lot of people thought um, given their transfer ban and all that stuff. And then come time when you get a bunch of people that cost a ton of money and you're not getting results. Roman Abramovich does as Roman, Roman Abramovich does um, given how, a lot of the Chelsea players, I think, really, really enjoyed playing for Frank Lampard. And it seemed like a lot of those players were, um, I, I don't know about upset, but uh, sad to see him go, I think. I think it's fair to say. Um, a lot of Christian, a lot of the, the Chelsea guys, including people like Mason Mount, Christian Pulisic, put out some pretty heartfelt messages about him leaving. Um, it seems to me like that's a person that has that, that very good, like motivational, like I will run through a brick wall for you that you, you hear people talk about some coaches having. I, I think that Frank Lampard has that in spades, which leads me to believe maybe he could. I, I think that Frank Lampard wants to coach. I, I really do think that he wants to be a manager. So I, I don't see him doing things outside of that unless there is no more market for Frank Lampard, the manager. Um, I could see him maybe doing another EPL team. I could see him possibly going to another league, but I want to put it out there that possibly the best version of manager Lampard is actually as an international manager. Um, maybe not like for a huge international side at the moment, given that he just really publicly lost a high profile job and his Chelsea team weren't doing very, very well. But that idea of you have short windows, you pick the team you're comfortable with, and then your your job kind of is impart a couple ideas with them and be a motivator. I could see Frank Lampard's best stints being that type of manager, just being the guy that's like, primarily I am motivating and just trying to give a a short, cohesive plan for a team that is only together for a week at a time to follow. I could see that being Frank Lampard's best outcome as manager. That's a really, really good point. I had not thought about him going the international route. My my initial answer, well, well, my real answer is not the one I'm about to say, but my initial answer is <laughs> he just needs to go and be an assistant on Phil Neville's Inter-Miami staff. That seems perfect. <laughs> it wouldn't work out financially, but I would genuinely love to see that. It's already, it's already an English party down in Miami with David Beckham and Phil Neville. Why not add Frank Lampard into that as well? But my, my real answer is I, I think he would fit at another championship job somewhere in that second division in England. He had success there before. I think this is a good opportunity for him to go back and continue to develop as a coach because he is still such a young coach. 
he has not been in charge of professional teams for a lot of time so far. But if if that isn't the right fit, if there isn't a job that's right for him, why not go the international route? He's got name reputation. I'm sure a lot of of smaller European nations would be interested in at least having conversations about him joining their their federation. I think that could really work at him. Yeah, I could I could easily see him. Um, maybe not the England job at this point, but I could easily see him uh, in different jobs with, with any of the other nations in the British Isles um, for for their national sides. If a post were to open there, um, I, I think that that would probably make sense. Um, I don't know. I, I just I could see it happening, I guess. I think Frank Lampard, manager of Andorra, sounds pretty good. And I, I don't really see why we can't make that happen. Oh, if it will, you know, sometimes dreams come true. So well, let's <laughs> let's keep hoping on that. We're going to move on to the next question, though, from Guy Yedwab. Uh, Thomas Tuchel calls you. We have another Chelsea question. Roman Abramovich has told him he can sell one of the marquee attacking players to buy one defender or midfielder of equivalent value. What swap do you tell Tuchel to make, if at all? I'm excited for this one because I feel like the chances of us possibly picking the same exact swap are actually decently high here. First, though, I think that we need to define marquee attacking players that we're possibly trading away. So who are the players that you think are would be up for discussion as a marquee attacking players that Chelsea is possibly selling? So on the chopping block, I have Kai Havertz, sure. I have Hakeem Ziyech, I have Timo Werner, and I added Christian Pulisic into yeah. this list as well, even though he wasn't bought in the same window as those other guys. Those are my my four attacking players that are on the block. Sure. I I also added possibly Callum Hudson-Odoi and possibly Tammy Abraham to that list simply because obviously those weren't players that Chelsea paid for. Um, they came through Chelsea's academy, but I would say that you could make an argument that those are possibly marquee attacking players and or at least players that would probably retain a lot of value currently on the transfer market given their their stance with Chelsea and also their relatively young age. Yeah, no, those are really good points. And even even with that expanded list, the attacker I've chosen to tell, you know, Tommy Tuchel to get rid of is is Timo Werner. Uh, that is the guy I'm getting out of here. Is that the same guy you have, Adam? Joe, that is the same guy that I told Thomas Tuchel to sell. So right <laughs> now, my prediction currently stands at one half correct. I'm I think you're going to nail this. I really think you're going to be spot on. But before I let you finish out your prediction, I want to explain why, why I have Timo Werner leaving Chelsea and why I'm telling Thomas Tuchel to do that. It's honestly more of an emotional pick than anything else. I don't think I can give up on Christian Pulisic's time at Chelsea quite yet. And I really want to see how Thomas Tuchel is going to use Kai Havertz. And I just really like to watch Hakeem Ziyech play soccer. And then that also goes for, for Tammy Abraham and Callum Hudson-Odoi. I don't want to rob Chelsea of their young English talent quite yet. So that kind of leaves Timo Werner, who hasn't been everything that Chelsea hoped he would be this season, but still has been statistically productive. He leaves Chelsea in XG. He's second on the team in expected assists. Regardless of the numbers, though, he's out of my squad, out of Thomas Tuchel's squad. Adam, why did you choose to axe Timo Werner? I still think Timo Werner is a great player, and and he is. He 100% is. He is currently down bat. <laughs> I think that he is, um, he is lacking a lot of confidence. Uh, you can see it. 
in some of his plays and some of the missed finishes and the uh, the missed penalty um, that just occurred in cup play. Uh, and and I don't think that a, a player lacking in confidence necessarily necessitates we have to move on from this player that we just spent a boatload of money on. Um, but I think that technically speaking, Timo Werner is a little bit of the problem child in this group in that when he plays and he is a forward, but when he plays as a forward, he frequently is trying to occupy spaces that the other players that are on this list, people like Christian Pulisic and Hakim Ziyech, and even at times possibly even Kai Havertz are also trying to occupy. Uh, and, even though that Timo Werner has seen a lot of success, uh, success with kind of, you know, you, you see expected goals totals and all that stuff. I think that it has thrown Chelsea's attack a little bit out of whack. And I don't think that it is a mistake that Chelsea has frequently produced some of their best games when you have either Tammy Abraham or Olivier Giroud starting up top as opposed to Timo Werner. So that's why I'm saying sell Tammy and keep everybody else be or sell Timo. Sorry, not Tammy sell Timo and keep everybody else. Because I think that if you keep Timo that necessitates multiple other sales of players as opposed to selling one player the other way around. Okay. So we're both chopping Timo Werner from this group of players Chelsea paid around $60 million for him back in June. So that was the financial range that I was using to mm-hmm. get to the other half of Guy Edwab's question here. And Adam, do you want to go first or second on the player on the player you're bringing in instead of Timo Werner? Okay, before, before I say it, did you pick a center back? I did, yes. I did pick a center back. Mm, we're close. All right, so who to pick? I, you know, I've, I've watched Chelsea games for mostly for Christian Pulisic this season, like here and there. And I think that there, you could say that they stand to improve in the midfield at points. Um, the carousel of Jorginho and Golo Kante, Kovacic and Mason Mount this season has produced middling results, I, I suppose. But what sticks out to me is not that carousel, but it's rather the carousel of center backs that they have used. And it seems like every few games, some other Chelsea center back makes a big mistake and they get rotated out and someone else comes in. They bought Thiago Silva to come in and, and be, and, and he has come in as to be one of the starting center backs, which isn't necessarily what you want as Chelsea to go out and be like, yes, we need this 36 year old to be the guy for us that is going to be playing every single game. I don't think that is optimal per se. So I selected Diopa Makano. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we did. We picked the same exact switch. See, this is what you come to Total Soccer Show for. We we do our research and we try to do the best things. And at the end of the day, me and Joe picked the same exact two players out of the multitude of players that we could possibly select in this in in this little thought exercise. Yes, I picked Upa Makano because he's he's young and not only is he clearly very athletically gifted, he is strong, he's very, very fast, he has that incredible range of passing and surprising dribbling skills that I know you, Joe, love to see so much. Oh, I love to see it. I, I don't have anything else to add, really. He's 22. He's one of, if not the best young center back in young center backs in the world. He brings so much to the table and, and you just pretty much hit the nail on the head on all of those things. I will say, in my own defense, I did think about a couple other options to answer this question. 
I thought about maybe trying to bring in Leon Goretzka from Bayern Munich to provide some uh, sort of extra quality in the field. I also thought about Jack Grealish from Aston Villa, but I thought that kind of went against the spirit of the question. Grealish, <laughs> technically, I, you could argue he's a midfielder, but he's more of a, a wide attacking option, not really a essential midfielder to provide some depth or some quality in that deeper area. He's certainly not a defender. So at the end of the day, I went up a Meccano just like you did, Adam. You are you're a genius. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have that carved on my tombstone. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so hopefully uh, our our collective brain trust guy uh, really just seals that that move for you um, and what Chelsea should be doing as far as uh, their transfer strategy in the next two windows uh, that, that you possibly see Thomas Tuchel getting. Moving right along, though, to Ben Goldman. Uh, next question, obviously. There are only 11 players on the pitch, but is a right back the same as a right wing back? Are inverted wingers the same as regular wingers, or are they the same position with different instructions? There are these differences all across the field, and we're kind of getting into the the nomenclature of position and positional names. Joe, would you like to take a stab at this one? Yeah, I would love to. So I think maybe the best place to start to answer your question, Ben, is to address your specific questions first and then maybe a quick little general bit at the end about how people talk about and categorize players and roles and positions on the field. So to get to the first question within this question, is a right back the same thing as a right wing back? The answer is no. A right back is the outside right defender in a back four. A right wing back is an outside right defender in a back five. So that's the distinction. They're both defending on the right. But the way I think about it is a right wing back can go higher up the field, at least theoretically, because he has an extra defender behind him to cover. It's not always that simple in a real game. But I think that's the theory on that one. Adam, do you have anything else to add on right back versus right wing back? Yeah, I mean, I I suppose that you could technically call a right wing back still a right back because they are kind of if you if you if you boil down these positional names to where a person starts on the field, which is which is kind of what the the basic positional names are. Um you could call a right wing back simply a right back basically with, with both of these examples though, and with a lot of different specific names for these players on the field, um, we're getting more from their physical location on the field to distinctions on how a person is actually going to be playing. So I think that when you say right wing back or right winger, you are mostly talking about, where that person is playing on the field, physically, the location. When you're starting to talk about wingbacks or inverted wingers or whatever, Trey Cretista or, or all these different, more specific positional names, now we're getting more into how a player is behaving, what their specific task on the field is, which I think is the big overarching difference that we're talking about here. Yeah, that's a great point because a right back, a right wing back and a right winger are those are three different positions. Those are three different starting points. But when you look at an inverted winger versus just a regular kind of standard winger or a false nine versus a number nine, just a classic forward, there are differences in what their instructions are. They're likely starting in the same point. An inverted right winger starts on the right wing, just like a regular right winger does. But the inverted the inverted tag there comes into play once that player gets the ball. So a, a classic inverted winger is Arjen Robin, probably the best 
inverted winger of all time or certainly one of the best. He was left-footed, but was specifically played on the right wing as an inverted winger. Not because he starts in a different spot than a right winger, but because once he got the ball wide on the right, he would dribble inside. He would cut in on his left foot instead of just driving to the byline and getting a cross in with his right foot. So that's the distinction between an inverted winger and kind of a classic old-fashioned kind of winger. The old-fashioned winger still starts in the same spot as the inverted winger, but the inverted winger is going to drive inside and the classic winger is likely going to drive to the end line. Right. And you, you kind of see, I mean, to, to bring it into American soccer land, you, you kind of see the same thing with how Chelsea has mostly utilized Christian Pulisic on the left side, right? You put a player on the opposite side of their dominant foot so that when they receive the ball on the wing, they're open to coming inside and all of a sudden they have the entire goal open to them and they're on their dominant foot as opposed to a normal winger that's on the same side as his dominant foot being more comfortable with the ball away from goal kind of putting the ball into the box and crossing the ball in instead of being an assist threat you're more of a scoring threat as inverted winger so that is i mean the the basic that in a nutshell and i think that ben it comes back down to we're talking about the difference between a person's physical location on the field and how that person is actually playing the game with those. I think that's the main difference in what your, your question is asking. Uh, Would you agree with that, Joe, I guess? No, I agree. I think soccer has a lot of these little positional or role inspired nuances. They're kind of jargony. Sometimes they're kind of annoying sometimes, but I think they can be useful to describe things. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward to say an inverted winger. And immediately now we can all have in our heads. Okay. It's a guy starting out wide and then cutting inside. Or if we say, I think I used the term ball playing center back talking about up a Meccano just a couple minutes ago. All that is supposed to bring, bring up in your mind is a center back. He's still starting in the back as a central defender, but it's a center back who's really good at passing the ball. It's those little tags added on to positions that I think can be confusing, but I also think they can be really useful to describe things at least some of the time. Absolutely. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think... 
I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Okay, on to our next question. This one is from Tate Rosenhagen, who asks, Is Bruno Fernandez for Manchester United the closest thing we've seen to a classic number 10? This question, Tate says, was inspired by Carl Enka explaining that Bruno is the only one on Manchester United who can break lines. So, Adam, we're going to talk about Bruno Fernandes in just a second, but I think like we needed to do with the classic marquee attacking players for Chelsea, we need to define what a classic number 10 is. Sure. And I'm, I'm going to turn it over to you to do that. What's a classic old school kind of number 10? I mean, I think that the the prototype of when I, I think of a classic number 10 is probably Juan Roman Riquelme, uh, the Argentine legend. Um, I think of a guy who starts in the middle of the attacking midfield. He kind of goes wherever he wants. And I think that my other big definition of a classic number 10 is that he does not defend. The, the classic number 10 is not a defensive player. They are not expected to really run back. Uh, they're not really even expected to press. They are there to get on the ball, hold it, make magic happen for those around him. Yes, something like Bruno Fernandez in that they break lines um, and make plays for the other players around them happen. And they are not the person that you are ever going to find running back and trying to make a defensive play. That is, in my mind, the classic number 10. And I know that I was, I guess I was gendering those as as he, but obviously um, that's not exclusive to to men. <laughs> There's plenty of, of women that are good examples of the classic number 10 as well. Uh, I, I mean, I think of Marta a lot, even though Marta also kind of pops up as a winger and in that sense is more of a modern number 10 um, in that the modern number 10 a lot of the times trends out towards the wing. Um, but yes, uh, the, the number 10 is the person who sits in the middle of the field, is the magician, and doesn't really defend all that much. That's what I think of. And it's a cleverly worded question from Tate because, because he asks, is Bruno Fernandez the closest thing that we've seen to a classic number 10? Not, is Bruno Fernandez a classic number 10? Because classic number 10s don't exist now. Everyone on the field has to defend. And once, once soccer sort of decided that that needed to be the case... Those number 10s went away. Raquel May went away. Marco Echeverry, I think about with DC United in early MLS. You know, those players were phased out as they aged out and as soccer got faster. So as Tate defined it, now we can move forward and look at is Bruno Fernandez the closest thing we've seen to a classic number 10 in recent years? And to be honest, Adam, over the last season or two, I would say yes, or at least he's up there. He defends on some level, but oh, that's yeah, he fine. Does. We, we decided that that's not an issue. But the role that he plays in Manchester United's attack, they played a lot of 4-2-3-1 and a lot of 4-4-2 diamond this, this year. Both of those shapes have a spot for a number 10 as that central attacking midfielder who receives the ball in between the lines and then can break lines with, with his passing or, or just move and dart around in the attack. Bruno Fernandes, I think, does that role really well for Manchester United and does it at at least a higher profile level than a lot of other attacking midfielders in Europe. Yeah, I, I think you could definitely make that argument. I'm not sure if 
I'm not sure if Bruno Fernandez is necessarily special in that because uh, because I, I do think that it does happen elsewhere. And the quick example that I thought up was um, the way specifically at the beginning of the season, the first month or so, um, the way that Andrea Pirlo was using Aaron Ramsey in Juventus and the Juventus midfield was very similar in that Aaron Ramsey was sitting in that attacking midfield hole. Uh, he was trying to break lines and slip the ball through to Juan Cuadrado or Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, and he was playing that advanced midfield role a lot for Andrea Pirlo specifically towards the beginning of the season. Um, Pirlo is kind of, mixed around his midfield a bunch as the season has worn on and, and kind of how he has utilized different players has shifted. But um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think you can make that argument for Bruno Fernandez. Certainly. I don't know if the, he's conjuring some bygone era uh, or uh, he is a classic number 10, like you said, because yeah, he's clearly doing some things that are not classic 10 ish. He's, he's being more of a modern 10 in that he does do some defending. He, I watched some of the Manchester United Sheffield United game, which I know that Taylor probably wishes he didn't watch at all. Um, and I saw Bruno Fernandez trying to enact some counter press and pressing place, uh, which is not classic 10 behavior. So I, I don't know if you could necessarily say that Bruno Fernandez is, is special in this regard, but I, I mean, I think you could certainly make the argument that he is pretty close to a classic number 10 in the modern games context. I think the big thing maybe that supports the argument that he is or, or is one of the closest players to that is I couldn't think of a ton of other players in the Premier League specifically is what I was looking at. I couldn't think of a, a ton of other players who get his his usage rate and that that is used so often for a team's attack. Bruno Fernandes gets so many touches on the ball. He he drops deep and breaks lines. He moves around in the attack. He is a high usage player for Manchester United. And I think that also speaks to him potentially being in at least a conversation as a borderline classic number 10. Sure. I, I mean, I, I can agree with that. I have no problems. <laughs> We've got one or two more questions to get to on today's show. This next one is from David Roberts, who says, I recently finished watching the Queen's Gambit, and I'm wondering if chess strategy could translate to soccer strategy. Adam, quickly, can you fill me in on the Queen's Gambit? I know there's chess involved. I knew that even before David's question, <laughs> not, but I don't, I don't know a lot else about it. Do I need to know anything else about it to answer David's question, or is that chess knowledge sufficient? Um, so the Queen's Gambit is a, a Netflix original, uh, television series, um, starring, um, Anya Taylor Joy, Anya Taylor Johnson, uh, last name starts with a J. I can't remember. Um, but basically it is a, it's based on, um, I believe it's based on a novel, uh, and it's kind of follows, um, this, uh, this young woman who kind of breaks down a lot of, uh, old boys club tropes in the chess world. And I believe at the end breaks uh, or beats um, the world champion in a tournament at chess. Um, I haven't watched the queen's gambit mostly because I'm, I'm just terrible at watching TV shows. I lose interest so quickly for no reason. I watch like a season and a half of breaking bad. And then I just stop for no reason at all. And I've never, I've never watched any more of it and I liked it and I thought it was good, but I have never like had much more of a desire to go back and watch it. So, so I'm not like the TV person, but I think that in general knowledge of how chess is played is probably sufficient to answer this. Okay. That's perfect. And I appreciate the, the little glimpse into what the queen's gambit actually is here for myself and for listeners out there who maybe haven't seen it either. 
I still don't know a ton about chess, but I do think, and, and from what I researched, there are some real comparisons between chess and soccer. Even starting at a basic level, you got the chessboard and the soccer field. Those are those are both two things that have defined spaces, that yep. have specific areas. There are similarities there. Then you've got the players on the soccer field and the pieces. Yeah, chess pieces aren't autonomous, but there's a comparison there, right? Different pieces have different things they can do on the chessboard. The same holds true in soccer. Different players have different jobs, different roles, different attributes. So I think there are some real comparisons there. But then I I went a little bit deeper and I read up on chess strategy and how it relates to soccer. And I found out, first of all, that Rafa Benitez is an avid chess player. I didn't know that. I also found out, at least I think, that Jose Mourinho is an avid chess player as well. I couldn't find as much info on that. But I pulled out a Rafa Benitez quote that said, chess is all about controlling the middle of the board, just like football. And I think that is the key comparison between chess and soccer, or certainly one of them. Controlling the midfield in soccer is huge. It allows you to do so many different things when you win the ball back. Controlling those middle four spaces on the chessboard is also big because it allows you to have greater control over the game in contrast with your opponent. It does, although I will say that the the Liverpool dominance of the last uh, couple of years has kind of broken that up a little bit in that frequently Liverpool has not <laughs> controlled the middle of the field. They have, they've, a lot of the time, you see this be more of a trending thing with a lot of the more pure uh press and counter press teams where now more frequently than ever, the midfield is skipped over entirely and you have teams that are more content to defend and attack and not worry about control of the middle of the field. But I think that much like strategy in a lot of things could be compared to strategy in different things that trust strategy is, is comparable or comparable to, to soccer. Um, when I think about chess, I actually do play a bunch of chess. I'm not very good, but I play a lot of chess. Um, chess strategy, when I think about it, is is usually generally all about making sacrifices in order to gain advantages elsewhere, right? So barring another person making a bad mistake when you're playing against them, you hopefully give up a piece in order to gain a positional advantage, advantage or take a piece from the other player that is possibly worth more, that can do more things on the board. And that's kind of the tactics of soccer, right? You sacrifice, for example, you might sacrifice an extra man in midfield to have two strikers or vice versa, or you decide to play a wide open counterattacking game that makes your attack very dangerous, but also leaves your defense vulnerable. So in in a broad sense, I think chess and soccer strategy line up somewhat. I I would agree with that. I like that insight a lot. I didn't know, first of all, that you played a lot of chess. And I I think you're right. It's about soccer certainly is about choosing your spots. It's about choosing what areas you're going to really commit to and, and want to control. Yes, you want to control the entire field, but that's not really feasible. If you're high pressing, your job in that moment is to control the area in the opponent's half. It's to suffocate them and to to win the ball and then attack quickly. If you're Spain at the turn of the decade from the 2000s into the 2010s, you really do want to control that midfield. You want to have really high-level central midfielders. You want to have that forward dropping in to help with that job. There are similar things in chess. You can decide where you want to try to attack and where you really are prioritizing defensively. There's that cover. There's that decision-making. There's that trade-off. And then there's also the whole, you know, you hear a lot of British commentators, I think, say, you know, it's a chess match between these two managers. It's a, it's a tactical battle. They say that because there's a tie-in. There's, they say that because there is a real element of strategy in both. Managers can set up their teams to play one way or another aggressively 
or less aggressively vertically or less vertically. The same goes for chess. You can choose those things and you also have to respond to what your your counterpart on the other side of the sideline is doing. And I think those things are true whether you're standing on the side of a soccer field or whether you're sitting across the table from someone playing chess. Yeah, for all you chess nerds out there, I would say that uh, the the Spain team that dominated in the late 2000s and early 2010s with that tiki-taka style uh, were, were something of the equivalent of the French defense, where they were very com- comfortable in really, really close positions and just making sure that they had control in the middle of the board, really uh, really focused on setting up good pawn chains and good good structure with their pawns as opposed to possibly now you look at how good Liverpool was the last couple of years uh, they're a team that isn't castling they are sending their pawns and their bishops flying up the sides of the board not caring too much about what's happening in the middle uh, trying to break down teams from the outside in and creating advantages and lanes for their rooks Adam Snavely chess master wow you brought there it there you go that was good. That was good work <laughs> on the chess side, Adam. We've got one more question to close out today's show. This one is from Patrick Delaney, who asks, are Andrew Carlton and Paxton Pomichol the newest entries in young Americans that we hyped up too quickly? And he notes that there are different reasons as to why they aren't maybe where we thought they'd be. But we're still at the end of the day looking at Andrew Carlton and Paxton Pomichol to try and decide if we hype them up too quickly. And Adam, for me, I think this answer was pretty straightforward. I split it. I've got one answer that's different for each of these two players, but I want to turn it to you first. Did we hype up these guys, one of them, both of them, too quickly? Yeah, you, you have to split the answer because, I, and, I, and I know that uh, Patrick makes the designation in in the uh, in the question. Little caveat: there are different reasons as to why they weren't where they thought they'd be. Um, but I will go out and say Pax and Paul Michael doesn't really deserve to be in this discussion because how much we did or did not talk about him had absolutely nothing to do with him not being around at the moment. Um, injuries happen and he got injured and that, that sucks. Sure. But I, I don't, uh, I don't think that whether we hyped him up or not is really relevant to the discussion of Pax and Pomichol at the particular moment. And and for that matter, I don't think we really hyped him up too quickly either. Um, I, I think because Freddie Adu exists, that Americans now have this massive fear that we're air quotes hyping somebody too quickly. And that has affected every single one of these youth prospects that don't turn out when in reality, that's just how soccer works and has always worked. It's incredibly rare that a lot of players from any particular youth national side grow up to become first team players for their country at the senior level. Uh, Even, even the German golden generation uh, that won the 2014 world cup, they had that U 21 team that won the 2009 European championship and then had all a ton of players. And it was, it was built, you know, there, there's a ton of players that went from that team that won the U 21 Euro championship in 2009 that then won the world cup in 2014. That's a massive success story over the course of five years. It was only six people. And that was a huge number. Uh, and I also footnote coincidentally, another person on that U 21 team that won the Euro championship was Fabian Johnson. Um, but six people made it from that youth squad to the World Cup championship. That was historic. That was like a, a huge achievement. That doesn't happen. Usually it's like one or two players <laughs> that, that make it from any given youth team. Um, so I think U.S. fans 
take on far too much emotional responsibility for a process that is inevitably just part of soccer. Prospects don't make it. It happens all the time. It happens everywhere. It is not specific to the U.S. team. And us hyping or not hyping a player, a lot of the time, doesn't have much of an effect. So, And and I don't think it had any effect on where Paxton Palmica was. And I don't think that we hyped him up too early or too much because he really was that good. And I still think that he could be that good if he comes back from injury and continues along the form that he uh, that he exhibited before injury. Um, that's, that's just a part of the way things work, though, is that most prospects don't end up turning up. Andrew Carlton, on the other hand, I will entertain as far as this question, because I think there's there's a lot of evidence that suggests his fall from grace was at least partially due to some attitude problems and or him not taking professional life very seriously, which could be a symptom of a lot of the hype generated. It's interesting. I think we looked at this question in slightly different ways. I think you looked at it, Adam, and, and neither one of these is right or wrong necessarily. They're just different. I think you looked at it, Adam, as as did we hype these players and did that hype have a detrimental impact on their career? And I more looked at it from a player evaluation standpoint. Like, were we really confident in Andrew Carlton and or Paxton Pomacall and, and confident in their abilities to become really good professional players? I think with Pomacall, we... We were confident, but we were confident at an appropriate time. He had gotten real minutes with FC Dallas and starred at the U-20 World Cup against a really, really, really good France U-20 team with a lot of high-quality professional players on it already. Pomacol had done that. He, he'd done the job of a high-level youth player. Andrew Carlton had as well, but at an even younger age group. Carlton starred at a U-17 World Cup where it's even more of a crapshoot, even more to a throw of the dartboard when you're blindfolded, right? Andrew Carlton was so, so promising and so good coming up and playing for the Charleston Battery in USL and then the USU 17s. But those levels are those levels. Those levels are USL and a youth World Cup. I don't know. I, I made the same argument with Pomacall, I guess, but it's a U20 World Cup versus a U17 World Cup. And I think there's a notable distinction there. We did that evaluating with Andrew Carlton. We, we tried to figure out if he was going to be this great player while he was playing in in the second division in a very much developing league in the United States and with a U-17 national team and maybe a tiny bit in sporadic appearances with Atlanta United in Major League Soccer, I think because Carlton was so young when we were talking about him and, and so young when we were predicting these great things for him, that that still left too much time for things to change. And they did change and they did sure. not for the better, right? Disciplinary problems popped up. The night before MLS Cup, he was out you know, drinking with friends, before, you know, and that, that led to Tata Martino not allowing him to play or dress, I believe, for that next game. Frank DeBoer had questions about Carlton's professionalism. And then there's the whole capital building business recently as well. So there's these different things that have come up with Carlton. And I, I almost wonder if, if we made that player evaluation decision too early, and, and not just even with him, but with a lot of young players who are playing at unproven levels, I wonder if we maybe decide whether they're good or bad a little bit too early on. That is possible. I mean, <clears throat> I, I I think that Andrew Carlton in in Carlton's specific space was, as far as we could tell, and based on the evidence that we had to go on, he was really, really good. And I think that we had good reason to be excited about him and his prospects. And even when he first started getting a few minutes for Atlanta United under Tata Martino, he did have a couple of moments in MLS where, where it seemed like 
this person does have a future. Like, like this is a good player that we, that is that Atlanta has on our hands and that possibly the U S has on their hands as well. So uh, again, I'm not sure if we, we hyped him too early, but I can see and, and I could even possibly agree with the argument that hyping Andrew Carlton possibly contributed in a little bit of sending him down the path that he found himself on, I guess. It, it, we're essentially grappling with the question that Grant Wall grapples with on his his podcast, uh, you know, talking about Freddie Adu, American prodigy. I mean, he, he, he wrestles with this question of how does media attention relate to young player performance? And those questions will continue to rage on forever, probably, because as you said, Adam, that's just how soccer works. That's just how sports work. And I think maybe that played a part with Andrew Carlton, as you said, maybe less so with Paxton Pomichol, but it is still it's still a fascinating discussion. Yeah, and and my longstanding uh, my longstanding line on on youth development is that it's um, <clears throat> part parts uh, part science, part tea leaf reading, um, and trying to kind of like <laughs> to, you know trying to determine who who makes it, who becomes a professional, um, and who doesn't. And and I mean the the most recent example I have is another member of that 2017 U17 team, Brian Reynolds, who at the time was a forward who really did he I, he got a few minutes at that World Cup, but basically didn't play. Um, he eked out that last kind of forward spot over one uh, Ulianas and uh, Ulianas didn't make that team. He was, he was uh, one of the, um, what is the word that I'm looking for? Uh, one of the, the reserve players. Yeah. One of the alternate players. Thank you. Um, he was one of the alternate players. Um, and, you know, in, in hindsight, I guess you could say, wow, like, or at least in hindsight, maybe a year ago, you could say, wow, that was really dumb that they took Brian Reynolds as a forward who'd barely even played and kind of doesn't even look like he's a forward anymore over Ulianes. And now today, Brian Reynolds is a right back and is the, the subject of a bidding war between the Serie A mega clubs. <laughs> so it, it is it is incredibly difficult to figure out who is going to actually make it as a pro and and who is not. Um, and you know, that, that question that you said that Grant Wall grapples with and that, that we are all grappling with, um, I kind of go back to, I think that because Freddie do exists, we American fans have taken on such a huge emotional responsibility of, Oh, like we, like we can't hype up players too much or, or don't talk about it. Don't ruin it. We're going to ruin this. It's, it's all up to us. And, and I don't think that, we need to worry so much about that sort of thing at the moment. It's part science, part tea leaf reading. I like that a lot. I'm going to steal that and claim it as my own. Adam, we've covered a ton of ground today. You predicted some answer that I had to a Chelsea transfer question. We talked about the U.S. men's national team and answered a whole host of listener questions. Thank you so much, Adam, for taking the time out of your day to come and talk soccer with me. Joe, as always, it's a pleasure, and I look forward to my next appearance, hopefully, on the Total Soccer Show. If you or Taylor invite me back, please invite me back. Sorry. I'm sorry (laughs) if I did anything wrong. Listeners, thank you for listening, and the Total Soccer Show will be back again soon.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.